0: All right, Matthew 20, let's get on to the really important stuff, which is the Scriptures and what God's Word has to say to us today. Um, I'm going to pray and then we're just going to jump in. I'm going to walk you through the Scripture reading in the context of my sermon today um, on the subject of the upside-down logic of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, um, we need your help because if we just look at the world through our own eyes, we will have a distorted view of reality and we need you jesus to show us your upside down logic how backwards at times you really want us to live and everything within our flesh and everything in the world says don't do that and yet you call us to and so i pray you'd give us the ability to know and understand how to be like you and to understand your logic and then to meet you at the cross, and then learn how to live in light of how you have lived. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a kid growing up, there was a number of times when my parents or my grandparents would um, say a kind of a pithy statement that I thought, where in the world do you get these things? You know, My grandma, for instance, if I saw a quarter and I picked it up, she'd say, hey, don't put that in your mouth, you'll get worms. I was like, oh, okay. So, you know, I was like, kind of gross, but okay, that's helpful. So. Um, and, and they had all kinds of things like that. You know, my grandpa would say, a penny saved is a penny what earned. And he went through the Great Depression. You know all those things. But there was one phrase that my dad used to say. And he, he would say it when we were working on a project together, like fixing a bike or a car or something. And the, the part just wouldn't fit. It just was like, this part is supposed to fit, but it doesn't. And, and he would make a statement that I've never forgotten, and it's this one. If it doesn't work, think opposites. In other words, you got this part, right? It doesn't fit. Just turn it around. And it was amazing. It was like magic. He said, "Let's try it exactly opposite." And I thought, nah, "That's not going to work backwards." And turn around, and sure enough, it fit. And I was like, "Wow!" And, and I came to learn from that two things: one, my dad's really smart, and um, you know it's remarkable. He got a lot smarter after I turned twenty. It's amazing how that happened. And then, and then, secondly, I, I, I discovered that this opposite thing—it it really works. It's—it's—it's almost—it was almost magical. Now, you won't find this little phrase in the Bible. This little piece of sage wisdom is not scriptural, but. Um, when it comes to what it means to be a follower of Jesus, there, there's a lot of things that are pretty similar to following Jesus as to what you see up there on the screen. Um, when it doesn't work, you've got to think opposites. You see, there's an, an upside down logic when it comes to following Jesus. It almost seems that in order to be a follower of Jesus, you almost have to do exactly opposite of what the world thinks in, in so many categories. In fact, I've said to new believers before, um, if you want to find obedience, not, not true obedience, but if you want to be close to obedience, just do exactly opposite what your heart wants to do, and do exactly opposite what the world tells you to do, and you're going to be pretty close. Because despite the fact that we live in a really pretty, beautiful world, despite the fact there's a lot of joys and a lot of thrills about the world that we live in, this planet is fundamentally broken. Its system, its people, and then enters jesus and what does he do he literally takes your world and he turns it upside down he transforms you from the inside out and what i want to show you today is this that there is an upside down logic when it comes to following jesus and and the sooner you understand it the the better off you'll be in being his follower and also you'll be able to process the, the world in which we live there's an upside down logic now, what's going to happen here is we're going to look at three words and see how Jesus re- redefines them for us. The first word is fairness. Second word is the word victory. And the third word is the word authority. And what Jesus does in each case is he takes those words and he turns them upside down. Just crazy how he does that. So let's look at the first one. And here's what we see regarding fairness. It's this, that the generosity of grace is beautifully unfair. Unfair. The generosity of grace is beautifully unfair. Look at verse 1. It says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. So this parable begins with a pretty basic plot line. you got a landowner who's got a vineyard. He needs some laborers, and apparently doesn't have enough staff at his um, house or his plantation, whatever you want to call it, and he's got to go and find some some migrant workers if you will and so he finds them lingering in the marketplace where they would have been there to try and find a job and he promised each of them a very typical wage which was a denarius so he promises them that if they come and work for him they'll give he'll give them a denarius so hi ho hi ho it's off to work they go and so they head to the vineyard. Verse 3, And going about the third hour, he saw others standing, in the idle, uh, the others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go to the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. Note that. No denarius this time, just whatever is right. So they went. And going out again, about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, this is now the third time that he comes back, About 5 o'clock p.m., he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. So for some unknown reason, this landowner needs more workers. And so he returns at the third hour, and then the sixth hour, the ninth hour, and the eleventh hour... And this last group is really remarkable in that they're going to work, but the amount of time that they're going to work is going to be very insignificant. They're going to work at five, and by the time the sun goes down, an hour, hour and a half later, they're going to be done. Now comes the tension point in the story. Verse 8. All of this has been a setup for this particular moment. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. So you know what's going to happen here, right? He started with the last, they came up, they put out their hand, he puts a denarius in their hands, and everyone else is thinking, cha-ching! If they worked an hour and got a denarius, what are we going to get? They think, man, we found the cash load here. This guy's going to pay us, because after all, we worked all day. Verse 10. Now when those hired first came... They thought they would receive more. Well, of course they would. But each of them also received the denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us. And then they add this, who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. They just had to throw that extra little thing on there, right? This wasn't unfair. They were like, and it was so hot. You know, they had to throw that out there. So people in the Bible are just like you, just so you know. So the men who were hired saw this moment and they assumed that they were going to be paid more, but instead they received what they had agreed to at the very beginning of the day, which was a denarius. Therefore, some of the servants begin to grumble. The Greek word for grumble is an onomatopoeia, which that means a word that sounds like what you do when you do this word. So so here's the word. In the Greek, it's gagudzo. Okay. Say that with me. Gagoozo. Say it again. Gagudzo. Again. Gagoozo. That's what it is. You're like gagoozo. You're like yes, master. Gagoozo. That's what it sounds like. That's what murmuring is. It's this grumbling and they are complaining because the master is obviously unfair here they had worked in the heat of the day working all day and he brings these guys in one hour pays them the same thing that is just clearly unfair little sidebar here see the problem is their perspective and that's one of the things you just need to mark down for your life for the rest of your life that if you base reality on your perspective and only your perspective you're gonna get in a lot of trouble Because you won't be the definer of what's fair very well because your definition will always remarkably benefit you more than anybody else. And the problem of perception, the problem of perspective is that you can really develop this world that's really unfair when you become the infinite reference point of what should be done. And that's what's going on here. However, the master responds in a way designed to meet their needs to know what's going on while also resetting their understanding of fairness look what he does in verse 13 he replied to one of them friend i am doing you no wrong did you not agree with me for a denarius in other words there's no unfairness here i mean they, they agreed to work for a denarius they worked all day they, they got what they had agreed to they got what was promised then he tells them that He's the landowner. He he reminds them, hey, just so you know, I own the plain, right? Just so you know, this land is mine. I'm the landowner. And the grumbling men have not been untreated fairly just because he's been generous to others. Verse 14, he says, take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. That's important. He's just chosen to do that. Verse 15, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Ah, now this verse has a lot of truth in it. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? See, the real problem here is not, friends, an issue of fairness. It's a problem of envy. And the master's argument is simply that he has, as the master, chosen to be generous, and therefore why should they be angry about it? He's free to be generous. He's not getting anything they weren't promised. Jesus then concludes the parable with a simple, profound, and utterly backwards statement. Here's the upside-down logic of Jesus. Ready? Here it goes. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. So what in the world is he saying? What what does that mean? Here's what it means. Jesus is showing them, and us, the traumatic beauty of of God's grace. Do you know that God's grace is beautifully traumatic? He's laying out for them that God's grace is wonderfully unfair. Those words may not go together very well with you, so let me let me help you think about this. When we say grace, what do we mean? Grace means getting something that you don't deserve. If you deserved it, it wouldn't be grace. It wouldn't be mercy. It it means undeserved favor. Therefore, grace, fundamentally, at its root, at its base, grace is unfair. That's what makes it grace. It's undeserved. The problem is, though, is if you've experienced God's grace... If you know God's grace, if you grew up in Sunday school and you could even define it, what's grace? God's riches at Christ's expense. I mean, if you can do that, you know, because you grew up as a kid in church, here's the problem. As great and wonderful as that is, you can begin to make grace the new baseline. So you know intellectually that you don't deserve grace, but practically you you live like you do. It becomes the new standard. So... When you see grace in action, or when you've experienced grace, now it becomes, or can become, the new basis of what is fair. And here's why this becomes problematic, because then you may grumble about why God's grace isn't poured out on you like it is on others. Someone gets a blessing, God exalts somebody else, and you're like, what? Well, here's another way. You wonder why God's grace isn't poured out on everyone. Great question. So why, isn't, why aren't all people saved? And you might look at that and say, God, and rather than leaving those two things in tension, you try and reconcile them and find some way to explain that. Like, grace is the new baseline. But grace fundamentally is unfair because it's not what we deserve. This also might lead you to believe or say that God has been mean to you So it happens when God takes something away from you And suddenly now you're like, this is so unfair And now your standard of what's fair and what isn't Has become based on your understanding Your presupposition, if you will, of God's grace See how this can become distorted? And what runs counter to this thought That I deserve these things Is first, the reality of what we do deserve And secondly, the sovereignty of God The reality of what we deserve is this. What what do we deserve? Listen, as as natural born sinners, we deserve definitive and eternal separation from God. That's what we deserve. So talk about fair. What's fair? Fair would be a holy God damning every single human being ever born. That would be fair. The problem is not just then our definition of fairness. Here's the real problem. The problem is our understanding of the problem of sin. That's the real problem. So every person ever born after Adam and Eve being separated from God would be righteous, would be just, and would be fair. And after all, that's exactly what happened with the angels in Satan's rebellion. There was no second chance, there was no grace, there was no unfairness. But that's not how we think. In fact, even me saying that creates immediate tensions in your mind. And I just want to remind you that the base of everything we're talking about is this fundamental issue that we are sinners and what we deserve is judgment. The other aspect here is that god is sovereign over all things meaning that since damnation would be fair then any act of god's mercy on his part is both gracious and free god can be gracious as he wants without violating any system of fairness so the master says am i not allowed to do what i choose with what belongs to me so that means That when God chooses to give, he does so because of his graciousness. But when he chooses to take away, he doesn't need to ask our permission. And one of the hard things about both the doctrine of sin and God's sovereignty, it is humbling and it reminds me that I am not God. And that's why it's challenging to the human heart to grab a hold of. To leave these things in tension, to leave them out there, it's just this constant reminder that I am not God god i'm not sovereign i'm not a ruler and in fact if i got what i deserved i wouldn't be alive i'd be damned forever in eternal hell that's what i deserve and the problem is that often we know that intellectually but we don't live that out practically therefore salvation by definition is an act of a gracious sovereign god who gives me what i don't deserve and everything in life has to be informed by this truth everything i have is because of god's gift even my life today is a gift. He doesn't owe me anything. I owe Him everything. That's the upside-down logic of Jesus. Even after salvation, God, God's blessings and even His rewards are rooted in undeserved grace. True, we work and we sacrifice, but even then we don't deserve honor or don't deserve God's blessing or His grace. The problem is, if you don't start from a right understanding of what is truly fair, you will will evaluate fairness and greatness incorrectly. And you will grumble rather than be grateful for God's providence in your life. If, on the other hand, you can view everything as so much greater than what you deserve, it will radically change how you live your life right now. So the disciples, like us, lived in a world whose definition of fairness and greatness was just the opposite of Jesus'. And he wants us to see that grace is beautifully unfair and the logic of grace is gloriously upside down. When I was a kid growing up, there was a guy in um, our church who when I would greet him or whenever you'd talk to him on Sunday, if you he said, Hey, how you doing? He'd always say, Better than I deserve. And I thought that was moderately cheesy. I was like, Yeah, that's, you know. but But you know what? The older I get, the wiser that statement becomes. That that there's great wisdom in realizing that living every day with this mentality of everything I have is better than what I deserve. Boy, that changes. That's, that's upside-down logic. And that's the essence of what Jesus is calling us to see here in this parable. Alright, secondly, the word victory. going to move quickly through this one. It's the third time that Jesus has told now about His coming passion. And we see here that Jesus, 17, was going up to Jerusalem. He took the disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going to go to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles, and be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised the third day. So, third time he said this, but now we've got new details. The new details are, first, that Jewish spiritual leaders are going to be involved. They're going to condemn him to death. That, secondly, Gentiles, Romans no less, will carry out his execution, And third, his treatment will include mocking, flogging, and crucifixion. So, this is the plan for Jesus' life, and there's no doubt in my mind, this was hard for them to hear. So, they're on their way to the sacred city, and they find out that the religious leaders of the day are going to be involved in his condemnation, and then the Romans, of all people, are going to put him to death, and then he's going to be mocked, he's going to be flogged, and he's going to be crucified. In fact, he's going to be killed in such a way that Deuteronomy 21 says that everyone who is hanged on a tree is cursed by God. This plan must have looked like a big disaster. Thankfully, he mentions the resurrection because that's a validation of his defeat over sin and death. But think of me, think with me rather what it must have been like to hear all that. That doesn't sound like a very effective plan, does it? And here's an important lesson for us to learn, even in the plan about jesus's death and it's this that spiritual triumph may look like a failure at first think of this god took the most unjust inhumane and unfair situation and he used it to bring redemption to his people it's amazing he took the worst and most despicable plan of satan All the while, Satan thinks, I got him, I got him. He puts him on that cross. He horribly abuses him, and he thinks, "Woo! I've won. And all heaven stops, and God flips it and uses everything the enemy tried to accomplish the redemption of bringing many sons to glory. Mark it down somewhere in your mind. When the enemy throws everything at you, when all hell breaks loose, just know that it broke loose on Christ, and God used it to redeem your soul. It's beautiful. The world's mentality would have looked at Jesus' death and thought, huh, you filed the wrong guy, but it's exactly backwards. That, a tool of torture and oppression and cruelty. The cross. This, this execution symbol now becomes a symbol of hope, forgiveness, and life. We wear it, we post it, we, we look at it, we think of it. This execution symbol now becomes the gateway for everlasting life. Only God could do that. And listen, this is, this is what God loves to do. He loves to take beauty from ashes. He loves to use the weak things in the world to confound the wise. He, He promises that even in the darkest of moments, when you feel as though everything is coming apart at the seams, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. And this is way God's, this is God's way of doing it. He loves to turn things upside down. Weakness equals strength, humility equals exaltation, and suffering produces glory. And you have to tell your heart that. Because that's backwards. That's backwards. Absolutely backwards. But this is how God works. This is how you were redeemed. Last word, authority. Get this, true power and greatness are actually found in serving. So backwards. Verse 20. Okay, this is, one of my, this is one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. I hope you read the Bible and you just like, what would it have been like to be there? Because I, this, would, this is really funny. The mother of the sons of Zebedee come up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asks him for something. I, you know, so here's little mom Zebedee, right? She's like, come on, boys, let's go talk to Jesus. And so she brings him up. She gets on her knees and the disciples are like, what gives here? And he says, you know, what do you want? And then she says this say that these two sons of mine to, would, are to sit on your one at your right and the other on your left in your kingdom okay so in my high school yeah what happens here is the guys are like hey get your mom out of here right <laughs> what is this what you have your mom ask for your position of authority what is that I mean, that's just that's like not cool at all And and, and by the way, this is, I mean, moms, this is what you're good at, right? You think your little kids are so awesome. Oh, you're so great. You're so great. Come on, let's go. Surely Jesus will give you the positions of honor because you're the greatest disciple in the world, right? So this is the problem, moms. You are lovingly, gloriously deceived. And here they come, and and it's it's just crazy. Look at verse. 22 jesus answered you do not know what you're asking are you able to drink the cup that i'm able to drink and remarkably the disciples go yeah we're able you know so here they got into mo- they started listening they didn't need to listen to the press they just need to stop listening to mom that was the problem is the, you know so little sidebar kids if your mom oh you're you're the best player on the team just know that every mom says that okay so you're not ask your coach Sorry, it's true. Now, notice as well, notice that what's crazy about this is they're actually full of faith. This this woman is talking about his future kingdom. Okay, so she's full of faith. She believes the kingdom is coming. So mark this down. Faith and pride can coexist. That's crazy. So she believes, your kingdom's going to come and we want to be great in it. I mean, it's just, that's how bad the human heart is. That we could believe and then also believe a lot about Jesus, and then really believe way too much about ourselves. And what we see here in the disciples is true of us, in that we tend to way overestimate our ability. And sorry, moms, but you don't help us. Verse 23, he said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those to whom it is prepared by my Father. And then verse 24, when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Yeah, I'm sure they were. They were like, come on, good grief. Verse 23, Jesus called them and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. What what is he saying here? He's helping them, he's identifying what they already know to be true. And that is often the case that when people get in positions of power, they use their power... To advance themselves and they you know a ruler because he's got the power loves to rule and they would have known this would have seen this all the time i mean you you see it in in the in the bible remember herod the great well if history is correct um herod gave instructions at his death he was afraid people weren't going to cry at his funeral because he was such a tyrant that he ordered all the men of the city to be gathered up and to be killed and put that in his will well gratefully the soldiers never did that, but it shows you how despicable people in authority can be. You don't really even have to have authority to be despicable. I mean, it's not the person who is an authority figure who you need to be afraid of. It's the person who thinks they have authority. So it's not like the police officer you need to be afraid of. It's like the security guard at Walmart. That's who you got to be afraid of. Seriously, it's not the person who's like... Has real authority. It's it's the it's the usher at church who thinks it's his personal responsibility to have people be hushing. And, and so he's the husher usher. He's like, shh, shh shh shh. And you give him a badge and a job, and suddenly now he's got some big job. Keep people quiet around here. You know, it's my job. It, it's it, we know that, don't we? And we you've done that. Come on. But I'm not talking about anybody specifically in the church, just to be clear. So. <laughs> Verse 26, It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve. And then, here's the statement. Oh, man. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says this. Look, you've got to be different. you got to be different than the world. It shall not be so among you. Then he says, Greatness is found in being a servant. Whoever would be great, must be your servant. And that's so backwards to how our world is. And then, lest you would think, okay, yeah, right. Like, who's ever, how's that going to work? Show me an example of that. Our whole faith hinges on a moment when Jesus did that. So when you come to him and you're like, I don't know if I can be a servant here. I don't know if I can do this. You're talking to the one who not only paid your debt. Look, he became your debt. He didn't just pay the ransom. He became the ransom. The difference is, slave market, you're up on the the auction block. Someone says, I'll pay $3,000 for that slave. That's ransom. Jesus didn't do that. No, you're on the slave block. You come up for auction. Jesus says, I'll take his place. Buy me instead. That's what he did that's unbelievable he personally became the ransom so when you struggle being a servant keep that in your orbit because that'll give you hope jesus knows exactly what it's like to pay the ransom and then god exalted him right we read it already today, Philippians 2. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that's above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So greatness and authority and ultimate dominion come not on the basis of you grabbing authority, but on the basis of serving and God exalts you. It's backwards. That's why the Bible says husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. It's gloriously upside down. It'd make no sense. It would be crazy unless this is the way that you were redeemed. And that's why if you don't know Christ as your Savior, what I'm saying to you makes no sense. What it? Fairness? Victory? Authority? Makes no sense. Su- but if you know the cross and you understand that Jesus paid your ransom, suddenly now everything upside down is actually right side up. Here's what we need to do. We need to preach this upside-down logic to ourselves. One of my heroes, Martin Lloyd-Jones, said, the problem with many Christians is they spend way too much time listening to themselves. It's true. You're a bad preacher to your own heart in regards to your own message. You have to preach the Bible to your heart. You have to take yourself and say, self, sit down and be quiet and listen while I tell you what you should be thinking. You need to preach the gospel. You need to preach the upside-down logic to yourself. Because in a world filled with power-hungry, self-exalting hearts, we need to remind ourselves all the time that we did not get what we deserve, that it's all about grace. We're swimming upstream on this perpetual river that's pushing us downstream. And the upstream swim is everything I've got is because of God's grace we got to come back time and time again to the gospel. We have to tell ourselves that spiritual victory isn't always obvious. It's not always recognizable right now. And we have to preach to ourselves that it was Jesus who first served us, that He became our ransom. See how, see how backwards this is? So, my, my question is pretty simple. So, do, do you think like this? Do, do you live like this? Do you know that Jesus... He lived like this so you could live like this. When God takes something away, are you are you okay with it? Can you hold it loosely? Or you get angry or bitter and shake your fist at God? How dare you! And the reality is, your, your system of fairness is completely off. You got to do it backwards. You got to realize what you deserve. Then there's freedom and hope because if God is loving and sovereign, He does whatever He pleases, but He is always kind and gracious. And you have gotten so much more than what you deserve. Oh, I fear how many times people have said, I don't deserve this, and I wonder if God were to open heaven and say, you want what you deserve? No. Does this motivate you to be a servant and then to be okay when people treat you like one? The greatest test of servanthood is not saying you want to be a servant. It's being a servant and then being okay when people treat you like one. See, once again, we see the radical nature of Jesus' life and his teaching is his words are backwards. And and they're so opposite, gloriously so, of the world that we live in. And what we see here is that Jesus' logic is gloriously and redemptively upside down. And we just have to remind ourselves every day when we get up, I live in a world that's upside down. How God wants it. And I got to live like Jesus. I got to cling to Jesus. I got to preach Jesus to my heart. And I got to live like Him. Because the logic of the kingdom is absolutely opposite. But it works for God's glory and our good. O risen Christ, we would have no hope in this life if it weren't for your example and your. beautiful payment by becoming our ransom and lord i pray today that you would in this very moment open the eyes of some man or woman here in this room or in worship too or maybe on the internet who would hear this message and today you would open their eyes to help them to see that they don't understand life clearly because they've never come to christ and you want to change them from the inside out God, I pray that today they would see and in seeing, believe, and in believing have eternal life. Lord, for those who know this truth, oh, help us to live in it because we can become so accustomed to grace that we begin to think or at least live like we deserve it. So God, help us to know this gospel and to live and to declare it not only around the world and not only in our neighborhoods, but to declare it to our own hearts. Thank you that this upside-down logic humbles us and exalts you and it is refreshing and life-giving to embrace this upside-down nature of what you call us to be and do and we could never do it without your help or the spirit and so we pray that as we leave today you would help us to live in an upside-down way and we ask this in the name of christ our ransom amen Listen, if you need to talk to someone or pray with someone, we'll have some people up here at the front we would love to spend some time with you. God bless you, College Park. I love you.